You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to another great program, Derms and Conditions. And I'm very happy today to have with me someone that I've known for quite some time. Uh, I think back over the years, we did some work in some medical dermatology areas uh, some years back. And for about two decades, Dr. Joel Cohen has built his private practice in the metropolitan Denver area about skin dermatology, but also quite a bit of clinical research and several publications, very well versed in publications and in teaching. And I think what's interesting, the reason why I wanted Joel here today is he's like myself, and been in private practices career. I had five years in academics. The rest has all been in private practice, but have a keen academic interest and teaching interest and publication interest. So that you're in for a treat. So Joel, it's great to have you here today. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation, Jim. Okay. So Joel, I know you're originally from Detroit. You have a strong affinity for University of Michigan. You trained at Mount Sinai in New York, where we all know the beloved Mark Lebwall is and several others, and did your derm residency at Henry Ford Hospital. So you went back home, uh, but now you're in Denver. And uh, can you talk about how you transcended? You first went out into practice, and I'm sure you didn't open up with five lasers and all, you know, a huge cosmetic practice from day one or a procedural practice from day one. How did you transcend from, let's say, general medical dermatology to integrate many of the things you do? Because I know you're very involved with laser light treatments, lasers, um, you know, injectable procedures that are done in cosmetics, even some of the devices that are used for medical conditions like acne. That's this built up over time. How did you make that transition? So first, I, I did a Mohs and Aesthetics Fellowship with Alistair Carruthers, and I really credit Alistair and Jean with having really gotten me involved in clinical trials. And I knew very quickly that I wanted to do a combination of medical, surgical, aesthetic, and research dermatology. So when I started my practice, obviously there were a lot of medical dermatology patients that had cosmetic conditions that may be amenable to treatment with a laser. So my wife and I sort of looked at each other and said, we need to figure out a way to purchase our first device. And our per first device was actually a Palomar Starlux uh, IPL device. So I could treat vascular with the green handpiece. I could treat lentigines, and then I could even do some hair removal. And, and then after paying that device off and integrating into the practice, then we started to expand into other devices that addressed other needs, including resurfacing of lines and wrinkles. So, Joel, uh, you mentioned paying paying the device off. I mean, that that's another significant side of it. So, for anybody that's thinking about getting into devices, even if, let's say, they're doing, you know, injecting, you know, fillers and things, some in, in their dermatology practice, they've picked it up along the way. So, over the years, I'm sure you maybe made one or two mistakes or or think back about how you may have wanted to do something differently. What are some of the things to to know before you get into buying, you know, equipment, devices that you use, and some of the things to look out for that you would suggest to someone knowing what you know now after about, uh, almost 20 years now? So I would really have folks focus on doing really a needs assessment. So I think as a practice that is a medical dermatology 
practice decides what to integrate into the clinic overall, that really you get all the doctors on board. And first of all, having a laser or energy-based device like IPL that addresses a vascular component so you can treat the rosacea patients is really key. Many of the patients who are pickers that we see in acne have post-inflammatory erythema. We can also treat that. And then many patients who have scars from flaps that we make may have some neovascularization. So making sure that we have really specifically define the audience that may be amenable to that type of device. I think secondly, addressing pigmentation. So certainly not the melasma patients, but the patients that have lentigines are folks that really benefit from using some of these lasers and some of these devices like BBL. And I think having that clearly defined is really helpful. And then making sure it works. So making sure that the device is available when it's scheduled between multiple different doctors. So we schedule the device and and we basically call it, you know, whatever the device is so that we know that while I'm using that device, another doctor is not scheduled with that device. It's really key not to create sort of a roadblock there. And and that's really helpful. So you're talking about that that first device that, that it sounds like you're treating, you know, erythema vessels, you know, enlarged vessels, uh, and also treating pigmentation other than melasma. I can ask you about melasma in a moment. But other than melasma, what type of device or couple of devices would fit those needs? And anything specific about the devices? Because the devices have changed, right? They have different ways that they pulse and different, you know, whether you cool or not cool, all these other adjunctive things that make you select what is going to be the best for you? You know, I think when people are looking to add something to the practice, having a platform that allows you versatility is important. So for instance, Cyton has a platform where you can have BBL, which is broadband light. So we have two of those units. So we can always be incorporating that. And we have a 515 filter for pigment and a 560 filter uh, for redness. And then we at each office, we also have an icon, um, a Max G that we can address redness and pigment as well, and, and that's a Sinusure device. So making sure you really make the right choice so that you can add on to the platform, and both of those allow us to add on to the platform. So um, with the Cyton device, we can do Halo, which is a combination of non-ablative fractional and ablative fractional. We can do fractional blade of erbium. I can even do full field erbium and treat lines and wrinkles. Um, but nevertheless, I don't forget about the medical conditions like actinic chelitis. And I treat a lot of actinic chelitis with heavy resurfacing. So I think it's important to think about all the medical conditions that we see as dermatologists, whether it's sebaceous hyperplasia, uh, syringomas, scars, and lines and wrinkles, plus actinic chelitis, and even xanthelasma on the eyelids, we can treat with some of those resurfacing devices. So tell me about resurfacing versus, you know, other types of devices that are not quite as invasive, right? Um, How you differentiate those? So resurfacing is the way that I really address people who have significant etched lines and wrinkles. And typically the mouth and the eyes has more severe 
etched lines and wrinkles. And sometimes if you're, if you're doing other types of modalities, for instance, non-ablative fractional lasers, you don't see that much improvement per session. And if you're doing fractional ablative technology, sometimes you have to increase to a density that's significant enough that the downtime is 10 days or so to really get a great endpoint. So I use full field erbium around the mouth and eyes for many patients who have etched lines and wrinkles. And then I'll do fractional ablative, either erbium or CO2 on the rest of the face that really looks different and doesn't have as much deep etching. Uh, any tips in terms of, you know, preparing the patient and what to tell them that you found really important so you don't have the patient coming back, oh, I didn't understand this, I didn't realize I had this much downtime, or that you were going to go this deep, or you know, any tips on how, how you interact with the patient, or do you delegate that to some other people in your practice that do that? I like to meet with patients ahead of time before a laser procedure, whether it's a minimally invasive laser procedure or a heavy laser procedure. And I like to show them what to expect with one treatment or what to expect with the recovery and what we can see with a series of treatments. So, you know, if somebody has a lot of telangiectatic rosacea, it's not just one treatment of pulse dye laser or XLV that's going to make it go away. People really need to understand that it's going to be a series. It took a long time for that condition to become prominent enough for them to come into the office. And I'd like to show them what they're going to look like after one treatment, what the downtime is going to look like, really very mild redness and swelling, and then what things look like if they complete a series over the course of three or four months, we can see some really nice improvement. I remind them that it's just not going to be something that's wiped away, that we don't have a magic wand, that the conditions that we treat, like type 1 rosacea, flare with warm beverages, spicy foods, alcohol, sunlight. We saw flares during COVID from wearing masks and just the heat from the masks. And we also see people who are, you know, professional chefs that are over something all day long and that heat really causes vasodilation. So those patients that suffer from rosacea are really going to need maintenance treatments. And for some of those people, depending on what they do and the stimuli that they're focusing on every day, they might need maintenance treatments every three or four months. But in general, most patients are maybe six to nine months where we do sort of a, an extra laser treatment just to continue to knock it down. So when you're talking about rosacea, um, and I'm interested specifically because some people have a diffuse erythema that's fixed because of, of underlying vasculature, and some have visible lines, the telangiectasias. Is there a difference in what you do for both of those? Sometimes they coexist, but some people have a lot of erythema, not, a, not as many telangiectasias. So is it a different treatment or is it the same for both of those? It's, it's actually the same modality that I use for both of those in general, that I just extend the pulse duration for the larger caliber vessels. Uh, perhaps you see vessels alongside the ALAR uh, area, and those tend to be really more challenging to treat. So having an extended pulse duration, number one. Number two, making sure you don't stack pulses, but you allow the thermal relaxation time and maybe even ice in between is really key. And there are times where maybe a long pulse and diag laser may be beneficial rather than just a pulse dye laser or some type of IPL device. And it's really key that when you're using an IPL device, because it does come in contact with the skin, you really have to have a light touch. Sometimes when I'm teaching courses and someone says, hey, look, 
I'm not getting this to really see that purple coagulation that you would expect from an effective treatment. I, I show them that by simply pushing too hard on the skin, they, they're compressing out the vessel. So they need to be really careful to leave that vessel patent so it actually has a chromophore for the light-based procedure. Are there any procedures in your practice that, you, what, I guess a way to think about this is for myself, what procedures do I have to actually be there performing the procedure? And what are some procedures that you may have delegated to uh, certain nursing staff or estheticians in your practice? You know, for the ablative procedures, I like to do those myself, and I've taught the docs in my office to do those as well. But for the non-ablative procedures, you know, many of in, many times those are done by the docs as well, whether it's pulse dye laser or a Q-switch laser or BBL Hero, which is an in-motion version of BBL. But when it comes to delegating, we delegate very frequently for many procedures like laser hair removal. Uh, laser hair removal is something where, you know, staff, our staff of and team of aesthetic folks can do very effectively and patients feel comfortable with them doing it. And they're very well trained and we have a great device. Uh, it's the Barrett device that really allows in motion treatment. So it's it's really very minimal discomfort. It's very effective. You can see that perifollicular erythema as an endpoint, and you see a lot of improvement per session. Um, but it is very safe because you can actually identify the skin type as a background. You can put the caliber of the hair, the density of the hair. So really, these, these presets can be very helpful uh, to delegate that type of procedure. The other things that we delegate in the office are things like microfocus ultrasound with all therapy. There's other tightening devices. Uh, we have M-Face, we have Evoke. So those are things that we have our team do. And then some of the body uh, treatments like M-Sculpt Neo. And then we just finished the clinical trial with MRI correlation for the flank applicator called the edge applicator for M-Sculpt Neo. And it's great to show patients befores and afters, especially from our own site showing really effective treatments. So you have a collection of photographs to show, you know, from your own practice or maybe a collection that, you know, is provided that you can purchase or whatever to show people the progression of what happens in these different procedures over time? Yes. You know, I think it's really important when you're doing downtime procedures like full field resurfacing or heavy resurfacing on the face. I've published a number of articles on that where I actually show patients to credential myself. Hey, this is something that I've been involved with for many years. Here's a couple of four or five publications on it. Uh, I speak on it. Here's some pictures of before and after. And then here's the sequence. I like to see patients a few days after the procedure and then later that week and then the following week until they've re-epithelialized. And then I like to see them two or three months later uh, to show really what the overall improvement is going to look like. And I don't think it should be company photos that we're showing. I think they should be our own photos. And to become really well-versed at a technology and machine, we start off by integrating it in the practice. We treat family members, we treat friends, we treat staff members, and then we can get sequential photos. Um, but it really does a lot to establish credibility with patients and have patients really understand that these are your results that you're showing them and not just the cherry pick best photos from the company. So what do you, what do you recommend, you know, that you're, 
this did not happen overnight, everything that you're talking about and understanding differences between different devices, different different machines that you purchase, etc. Um, what do you recommend in terms of where do you get information? So let's say I want to buy a pulse dye laser device or some device for laser hair removal, whatever. You know, how do I know which ones are good and which ones are maybe not quite as good as each other? And you talk to the representatives and you could find some good information there, you know, from some credible people. But how does the dermatologist, the clinician out there that want, wants to do this or, or buy a device, get information so they can get a good handle. Uh, and then, you know, tips on con contracting. Do you lease? Do you purchase? You know, those are some of the things I think people face that hold them back. So first, you know, if you're interested in integrating aesthetics in your practice, you have to go to a meeting that has a combination of medical dermatology and aesthetics. And your meeting, Fall Clinical, is a great example, having parallel tracks. So if somebody sees something they're interested in, they can attend that session. They can specifically ask questions during that session, and they can really approach some of the faculty members after the session for their candid feedback. So that, that's, that's a good start. And then secondly, you know, they can really demo some of these devices in their office. They can bring in the laser and work with the rep to bring it in. And, and really, don't just treat one patient. Treat three or four patients and see what you think works best. Ask about discomfort. Have the patient come back a week later and look at – or two weeks later and look at the efficacy. And then think about, you know, the cost is it a platform? Can you add on to it? Or is it something that's a standalone device? And think about some of the limitations. Some of the devices require a 220 outlet. Not all our rooms are configured for that. And then lastly, consumables. So some of these devices do have consumables that you need to think about and some don't. And then really, I, I think the final thing is after you've purchased the device and you're paying off the device, after usually about two years, there's a service agreement that kicks in and understanding right up front how much the service agreement is going to cost you is really imperative. Right. And what are, can you give me an example of some of the consumables that really might surprise someone? Oh, I didn't realize it was going to cost this much. What types of consumables to look out for? Sure. So, you know, for RF microneedling devices that are bipolar fractional devices. It, it may be 50 That's radio or, frequency, RF yes. radio frequency, right? Okay. So, you know, it may be 60 or $70 for a tip. For some of the lasers, you know, it may be close to $100 for a tip. So when you're thinking about what you're going to charge for a procedure, you have to back out really the cost of goods. And those become pretty significant. So, Joel, I know you are very active in, in researching and, you know, not only devices, but, you know, some of the techniques that you're doing, even with maybe, you know, some of the fillers, uh, you know, some of the injectable toxins, or even some of the new procedures that you've been studying. What, what do you find exciting? You know, what, what, what seems to be new that you've worked with that you really think op opens new doors in this area? Well, this hits close to home for you being one of the acne experts in the world, but 
the 1726 wavelength that Rox Anderson and Fernando Sakamoto came up with a number of years ago uh, has really hit the point where we now have two FDA cleared devices. So the first device that was cleared is Qtera's Avaclear, and the Acure device uh, was FDA cleared as well. I was one of the three initial investigators for the Acure device. I treated more patients than anybody else, and we have now seen patients at a year who've had pretty remarkable improvement. So to be enrolled, they needed to have more than 15 inflammatory lesions on the cheeks and the chin. And I'm seeing patients back who are not allowed to do anything in the interim at a year that might have maybe one or two inflammatory lesions. So I think it's pretty exciting to be able to target with a specific wavelength, 1726, the follicular structure and the sebaceous gland with these new lasers. And what about comodonal lesions? I know there's another device that actually has an extraction ability, a pneumatic component to it that I believe is an older device. What about uh, treating comodonal lesions? Those are some of the toughest patients to get get rid of the open and closed comodones, and, you know, not just the inflammatory lesions. Any Any thoughts there? You know, TheraClear is a wonderful device that has been on the market for a number of years. It first started out as uh, TheraVent and Palomar co-marketing with something called Aclira. And then Stratamed actually has purchased this device and is relaunching it right now. And we can see improvement in inflammatory lesions. It's also nice because the wavelength that is really filtered off is an IPL device as well as a photopneumatic device. So yes, you can open up some of these comodonal lesions or inflammatory lesions, but you can also target the erythema and help decrease some of the post-inflammatory erythema for some of these acne patients. And then finally, the wavelengths is really targeting some of those little bands, the Saray band and the Q bands of endogenous porphyrins to decrease some of that content and have a, a chromophore, have a target for the wavelength. So how many, you know, you have a patient that comes in, they've been on medical therapies, they've only gotten so far, they're, they're not crazy for whatever reason, maybe ongoing isotretinoin, whatever. Um, and so is one treatment going to do it? Do they need a series of treatments? How do they keep the acne under control? Can they continue their medical therapies? You know? You know, for a, a lot of these kids, it's really important that they understand that there's no magic bullet. We don't have a magic wand. We just can't wipe things away. And it's really going to be a combination of medical therapies, whether it's oral antibiotics to get people over a short course. And I tend to only do that for maybe uh, about two months or at most three months. And then topical therapies, as we know, and some of the combination therapies incorporating retinoids and benzoyl peroxide are really key. Um, but having patients understand that that's going to be a long-term plan for them and then incorporating some things that make sense based on the morphology of their acne. So we use uh, dermal infusion microdermabrasion treatments to open up some of those follicular structures and those closed comedones and open comedones uh, for kids who want to see improvement more quickly. It helps penet the penetration of their topicals uh, more. And then we can start working on some of the inflammatory lesions with the TheraClear and then really incorporating uh, folks with some of those 1726 lasers that can long-term affect the glandular areas and the follicular structures and the sebaceous glands um, in a long-term fashion, much like Accutane. 
How often are they going to need the the laser treatment, though? Is it something that in the beginning it's you you have to do more of it, and then you can space it out for maintenance? So in the Acure clinical trial, we did one treatment a week, sorry, one treatment a month for four months. And that's been a really effective regimen for these folks. Uh, but in that clinical trial, we were not allowed to actually have any other modalities or any right. other medical therapies. And, you know, really the art of dermatology is seeing somebody in front of you, figuring out what the best plan is an approach for them and thinking about the things that they do. My son is a 14-year-old hockey player and where his helmet and where his chin guard hits has significant frictional components uh, from the acne. So if we need to think about what causes occlusion, what causes post-inflammatory erythema, maybe the way these kids are washing and unroofing some of these lesions, even if they're not picking and manipulating, they're still unroofing these areas causing post-inflammatory erythema. So thinking about the best modalities to decrease some of the redness. Sometimes it's a pulse dye laser or XLV type laser to decrease the redness and then incorporating something like TheraClear for the inflammatory lesions, getting them on a maintenance regimen with the dermal infusion as well as the topicals at home. And then thinking about, are they going to go the Accutane pathway or are they going to actually go the 1726 laser pathway. And some of this really depends on where they are in terms of their epiphyseal plates. So I'm married to a pediatrician and there is a bit of concern with Accutane prematurely closing kiddos epiphyseal plates. And I think nobody really knows the answer to that question. And there may be parents out there who say, look, I'm going to let my kiddo finish growing, but I need to get a handle on this before scarring really sets in. So the 1726 lasers really make sense. Yeah, so when we say Accutane, it, it's any isotretinoin, you know, not, you know, obviously is the brand Accutane, but it would be any isotretinoin. So Joel, uh, I've learned a lot. I, one of the things I can say about you that I think is very important is anybody who's at a meeting that you're at, uh, you're very congenial. You're happy for people to come up to you and ask you one-on-one -on -one questions where a lot of these a lot of these questions get answered that satisfy the individual. So thanks a lot. But I have one more question for you, Joel. Okay. Yes, sir. Uh, do you prefer your pizza very thin crust? If you had to choose one, right? Very thin crust or that thick, juicy, deep dish Chicago pizza? Do you have a well, preference? You know, I'm going to go with another category because I'm from Detroit and the Detroit style pizza is that square pizza that's thicker pizza. It was really started by Buddy's Pizza, which is a um, a guy, Billy Jacobs, who was a good friend of my dad's, opened up Buddy's Pizza. And now we even have Detroit-style pizza from that original recipe from Buddy's Pizza here in Colorado. So I would go with that. Uh, wow, that's a that's a new category. I'm, I'm going to have to remember that. Well, thanks a lot, Joel. This has been great. Um, I'm sure I'll be seeing you soon in an upcoming meeting. Say hello to your wonderful wife, Goldie, uh, who I know and, and and she's a great lady. So thanks a lot for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at podcasts at fred.health. And most importantly, if you like this episode, subscribe to the Derms and Conditions podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Thanks for joining us.